0: Is there more war and wholesale violence in our future? Welcome to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. In this episode, we talk about the prospect for war in our future from the unique perspective of one of our favorite guests. We're going
1: to play for you a conversation we had with Jack Moscow. Jack is a co-founder of the Writers' Collective in New York. He has an extensive background in management training, strategic planning, and political consulting. His commentary on political events was previously posted in bloggingforutopia.com and Dispatches from Utopia. He is the author of Why Not Utopia? A Political Platform in Search of a Party, and is currently working on a new book,
0: Dispatches from the Planet Utopia. I think it's worth pointing out for people who don't remember that Jack is. What would you say when someone is in their nineties? Irrelevant <laughs> ageism. He's pulling on an awful lot of decades of experiences. That is that is quite quite accurate. Yes. Here is our interview with Jack Moscow. Jack, welcome to the Hub for important ideas. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Hi, Jack.
1: Oh, hi, Ken. How are you? Good, thanks. Jack, it's a pleasure to have you back on our show. Thank you for being our guest once again. The subject of this episode is war. War in general, no pun intended. America just completed a 20-year war in Afghanistan, the longest foreign war in our history. In October 2001, the U.S. invaded Afghanistan to defeat Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, but little progress was made. The Taliban resumed control when the U.S. pulled out. In March 2003, the U.S. invaded Iraq and overthrew Saddam Hussein's regime under the pretense that the regime had weapons of mass destruction, most notably nuclear weapons, which wasn't true. The U.S. pulled out in 2011, paving the way for the rise of ISIS and the redeployment of U.S. troops. Tens of thousands of civilians may have died in retaking Mosul and other cities from ISIS. Since 9-11, the U.S. has conducted hundreds of drone strikes in Pakistan, and use the country as a military staging area. The current estimate is 479,000 to 507,000 total deaths, including civilians, opposition fighters, U.S. military, U.S. contractors, national military and police, allied troops, journalists and media workers, and humanitarian and NGO workers a half a million total deaths. This doesn't include indirect deaths, such as loss of access to food, water, health facilities, electricity, or other infrastructure. Now, going back, during the Gulf War actions between 1990 and 2007, 74,000 Americans were killed, more than the 58,000 reported casualties from the Vietnam War, which to me was I was amazed when I saw that number. A 2007 report stated that a a horrifying 1,600,000 disability claims were filed by Gulf War veterans, and thousands upon thousands more have filed in the decade that followed, plus 30,177 former military post-9-11 war suicides. Civilian deaths have also resulted from the U.S. military operations in Yemen, Syria, Somalia, and other countries in the U.S. so-called war on terrorism. So I'm sorry for that, that long preamble. But Jack, would you talk about how we define and quantify war and violence?
2: Yeah, I certainly will. But let me uh, meander around a little bit for a minute or two. And I want to play around with a couple of ideas. One, I'm not a big fan of cause and effect. I'm a little bit more inclined to like correlation. It makes a little bit more sense to me. I'm not also a big fan of comparative suffering. I'm going to be expanding the concept of war. To me, all acts of aggression and violence are war of some kind. So with that introduction, ask me anything you want.
1: (laughs) Okay. Ken, you have, you have a question for
2: him. Yeah.
0: Jack, you've said that America is the most warlike country in the world today. Why did you say that?
2: First of all, in harmony, and lockstep with the GOP, I never said it. If I did say it, I didn't mean it. <laughs> 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 I probably said, or I've certainly meant to say, we are a very, it was, I was just talking about comparative. We're a very warlike country. And I said that because I'm going to th- go through my notes from memory. I won't count the period before 1776 because we were theoretically British subjects. So things like the French and Indian War, we were colonists. Although I would point out that George Washington was the general who led that war. By the way, when I was raised, I thought the French and Indian Wars were the French and Indians were fighting each other. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, the way they distorted history was like unbelievable. But let's go to 1776. We had a revolution. Canada didn't. You know, same time, same period, same ethnic background. 1812, the War of 1812. And, and we started it. We went up to Canada and invaded them and did whatever. And then the Mexican-American War. And then the Civil War. And all of the wars against the, the Plains Indians and then the war, Spanish-American War, and then World War I. And then between World War I and World War II, you had all of what were called the Banana Wars. And I know you're going to ask me about uh, Smedley Butler. This was the most decorated Marine in history, and he was involved in every war in the Philippines and China, and finally the Central American Wars, which were all you know, about uh, the Banana Republics meaning we were fighting for a united fruit in all of those companies. And he said, he realized he was a bag man for the capitalist system. And he was just a, a muscle man and a racketeer. So then in the 1930s... So that's uh,
1: that's what he meant when he said war is a racket. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was his famous quotation. Yeah, yeah. And
2: he was talking about the fact that the local indigenous people, uh, every time there was a strike, for better wages or to prevent expropriation of their land, uh, we sent in the Marines. And that was his, uh, He, you know, he came to that realization late in life, but then he became a fierce opponent of American militarism. So I
1: guess the question that Ken was asking,
2: you have said we're the most warlike country. Well, I want to go back to that. I'll, yeah, I'll list okay. all of our wars.
1: Yeah. Oh, okay, go ahead.
2: Uh, I'm only up to 1930s. <laughs> <laughs> okay. then we had World War II, presumably a just war. And then we had, as you mentioned, Iraq, Afghanistan, a couple of those. Korea. Korea, Grenada. Grenada. Yeah, well, I was going to talk about Grenada in a separate context, but I will. I'll, I'll, I'll digress for a minute. Virtually every war that we fought after World War II, we lost. If we didn't lose it on the battlefield, we lost it in the peace giving. The only successful wars we had were run by the CIA. Their covert operations, and that was war. We don't like to talk about it that way. But they were very successful in Argentina and Chile and Bolivia and Peru and Colombia and Brazil and Grenada and Panama. Everywhere they went, they were successful in establishing a counter-revolution. Now, ironically, 20 or 30 years later, after those regimes tortured and killed tens of thousands of people, there was a swing to the left, and now our CIA is busy again, and there's a swing to the right. Now, I call them war. They're covert, but they're, they're war. Nicaragua, if I didn't mention it, El Salvador, Honduras, you name them. My daughter works with a woman whose sister is a Catholic nun, and she was one of the nuns killed by the Salvatorian counter-revolutionary government. And again, no, no Americans know this, you know, when I say no, a few. So you have all those wars, but are we the most warlike? France and Germany fought a hundred years war. Mm -hmm. You know, what do you call England during the whole imperialist period? They were at war with just about every country in the world that they conquered. So again, I don't go in so much for a comparative. That's why if I said the most warlike, I spoke out of turn. I'm content to say we are a very warlike people, and we almost always resort to war when we're confronted with uh, something we don't like. But
1: very warlike in that we don't look for diplomatic solutions, it seems. That's what I'm saying. Okay,
2: I understand. So so Most, Most of the countries in Europe in World War II succumbed to the Germans in the face of their superior might. There were two that didn't, England. And England has the same Teutonic militaristic attitude. And we have that attitude. And the Russians, who are crazy in defense of their homeland. But when I say warlike, you look at a country like Italy. I mean, they couldn't even defeat Greece. They invaded Greece. They're a country of A 100,000 Greeks rushed to the front lines and kicked the hell out of the Italian army. Uh, <laughs> the Ethiopians with spears practically kicked the hell out of them. And Germany had to go in and rescue them. Mussolini did more to help the Russians than anybody because he delayed Hitler's timetable going into Russia. Because he had to send in the German army to help uh, Mussolini defeat Greece. But But the Italians are not a warlike people. Yeah, but you look at right
1: now in the, the current international situation with China... Flexing its muscles and Japan rattling sabers and and now we're bringing Australia into this and to my knowledge China has never really started a war in the in the modern modern times.
2: Let me play around with that because China was the most warlike country within China. Sure. Oh yeah. And in recent times, they did not cave in. They lost militarily. They did not cave into Japan. But the Chinese communists and the Kuomintang were at a war from 1920 on for 30 years until uh, the Kuomintang finally surrendered. So, no, they're a warlike people. The Japanese are a warlike people. One of the reasons that Japan never went the route of all of the countries like India, China that succumbed, to Western imperialism is that they were unbelievably warlike culture. And the result was when the West tried to invade, they had a history of uh, the Shintos and what do you call it? The samurai. Yeah. And they only let the Western powers, meaning us in on their own terms. So yeah, there are countries who for whatever reason, I don't know what it is, they are more warlike. Now, all of this breaks down on the individual level. Sure. There are the 60 million Germans who are, quote unquote, a warlike nation. Yeah, there are probably a million who actually killed Jews. You know, there are probably a million who went to war and fought and the rest just kept their head down. But every time there was a war in England, in Germany, in the United States, the bands played and everybody cheerfully went to war and in other countries... When there was a problem, everybody cheerfully surrendered. So uh, we're a very warlike culture. Let me say that.
0: My my daughter has
2: a saying. All stereotypes break down on the individual level. Getting back to the Afghan war, this 20-year war
1: that just ended.
2: Mm -hmm. And
1: everyone's been talking about. Oh, should we have stayed? Should we have stayed another five years? No, let's get out of it. Well, we had 20 years to convince the Afghan people that our way of life was superior to the Taliban's. We gave them consumerism, medical advances, symbolic immortality, and the Taliban offers literal immortality. So, do you think this culture clash played a role? In the war's outcome.
2: Absolutely. Can I read something that I wrote in 2013? Go ahead. Sure. I I had a chapter in my book on uh, either war or violence of foreign policy, and I made the following points. I'm I'm reading from my notes. You would think, given the history of foreign invaders in that country, we might have thought twice and considered other alternatives before we decided that war was the best response. In 1978, there had been a a coup in Afghanistan, a communist coup, led by some military people, and they established a communist government. They immediately instituted land reform, women's liberation, educational reform, etc. And at that time, there was no uh, Taliban. They were the Mujahideen. And the Mujahideen waged a counter-revolution just the way Trump and the GOP are today. And they were winning. And it was going on for a long time. And the Communist Party begged the Soviet Union to come in and intervene. And contrary to reports that the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, they very reluctantly went in. In fact, the internal memos that I've been able to read that, you know, other reports, they had a long internal debate, and they were saying, in effect, it's another Vietnam. We don't want to do that. And the Soviet Union reluctantly went in. And what happened is we decided, the CIA, that this was a great place to defeat the Russians. It was a proxy war. And we did defeat them. We we gave the Taliban all of their air to you know, everything, gave them everything they needed, including more money than they could ever spend. And we eventually defeated the Russians, they left. Again, the Taliban defeated them. So when you look at it, these were a warlike people. From history, they defeated the English in 1839. You know, Afghanistan was known as the graveyard of imperialism. Everybody who went over there, they eventually gave in and they were known to be fierce fighters. In fact, they were contemptuous of us as fighters. By the way, Putin is famously said to have remarked to one of the Bushes, uh, "Don't you wish you would let us win the war?" <laughs>
0: so,
2: <laughs> uh So we're again a very warlike people, and we respond that way. We see a problem, you know. And by the way, uh, the first thing we did when we became a country, we established a naval academy. Now we've always considered so a non-military, because we didn't like the draft. And whenever there was peacetime, we never had an army to speak of. But Afghanistan is typical of, I hate to use the word hubris because it's kind of jargon I don't like, but we are so egotistical. And we are so certain that we are right. And we have this uncanny ability to call ourselves a democracy. There's no democracy for slaves. There was no democracy for working class people. We called in the military every time they went out on strike. And this goes back to the 18, well, actually, it goes back to Shay's rebellion. Shay was a revolutionary uh, veteran. And after the war, they were all being taxed to pay for the costs of the war. And they had to pay in gold, which they didn't have. And the rich people had gold, weren't paying. They were escaping their taxes even then. So Shea Raid launched a real revolution. I'm talking now, I don't remember the year, but 1790, in that period, 1800. And this was up in Massachusetts. And they waged a war that they didn't have to pay back, or if they did, they could pay back with scrip, not gold, which they didn't have. And Washington and the government sent in the army and crushed the revolution. And every time this happened... That's what the army did. There were all of those strikes in the 1910, 20 period. Steel, auto, coal. And the government called out the military. They were very violent. The, the, yeah. the labor movement in its early days was very violent. Our, well, our labor movement was the most violent in the world. Right. We always talk about how, unlike Europeans, we didn't have class divisions. Mm. Now, an interesting theory is that The labor movement was largely built not by Jews in the beginning, but by the Scotch-Irish. And they are warlike people. I never realized that the Scotch-Irish were Scots people that England sent into Ireland to tip the demographic scale because the Irish were so rebellious and constantly in rebellion and constantly fighting. So they sent in Scots to dilute their, their heritage but the Scots are just as militant as the uh, Irish. So that was the background. And then in the 1910s, not that period, when it, the labor movement was not largely, but disproportionately Russian and Jewish, they called out the army. And uh, Where was the one out in Idaho or Boise? It was a pitched battle. It lasted for days. That was, I forget the name of it. And then you had all of the ones in the steel mills, the Homestead ones. You had the Haymarket one. Well, we fought a
1: war in Florida with the Seminoles. I was just going to mention that yeah. when you talked about the longest
2: for war. Yeah, The Seminole war may have been
1: even longer. Oh, it's that's why I said it's the Afghan's the longest foreign war. Oh, okay. You know, but well, well at that time
2: Seminoles were actually a, a, a Spanish colony.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. you know
2: and uh, but again it became a place of refuge for indians and black slaves and they fought forever and i think it was uh dear as he's known bloody andrew jackson right who right. Uh, actually finally uh subdued them it took a hundred yeah. years it went it, on, it and took on a long time yeah
0: jack you touched on it a little bit we wanted to talk about the success rate of our country in fighting war since World War II. You're expanding the definition of war at the beginning, changes the nature of that question slightly. Yeah. But you think that we've done pretty badly at winning war since World War II, and I wonder if that uh, doesn't seem to affect our proclivity for getting into them again. We don't seem to learn a lesson very well.
2: No. And and Germany didn't learn its lesson from World War One. They claimed it was stabbed in the back by Jews, Otherwise, they would have won. And we have all kinds of excuses for why we didn't win. We fought with one hand tied behind our back. That was the major one in Vietnam. And the only reason we had one hand tied behind our back was the Chinese and Russians said, we'll let you win, but we will not let you go near China. We will not let you do anything. So yeah, we've lost all of those wars. And the military will tell you, no, we won the war, we lost the peace. Mm -hmm. And again, we have, Collective amnesia. American history is basically unknown, or at least the counter history is unknown to 99% of Americans. You know, in a previous conversation, Steve, you and I were talking, and I was saying oppressed people can't let go of their oppression. The oppressor can't remember it. You know, (laughs) and that's why they don't want to hear critical race theory, they don't want to hear anything. There's a classic story about Jews. Is this another Jewish joke? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, He's got a million of them. I know. I do. And I'm not even religious or observant. Yeah. I, I'm one of Sartre's uh, secular Jews. If it wasn't for anti Semitism, I wouldn't be Jewish. <laughs> but um, four people Englishman, Frenchman, German, and a Jew are writing their doctoral thesis on the elephant. Now, keep in mind stereotypes. The Englishman writes on hunting the big game elephant. The Frenchman writes on the sex life of the elephant. The German (laughs) writes on the statistical measurements of the elephant. And the Jew writes on the Jew and the elephant question. (laughs) They won't give up. Well, we've carried next year in Jerusalem for 5,000 years. And Jewish people, particularly the religious ones, Remember everything from the diaspora, from in particular Portugal and Spain, where they were expelled. But you look at Israel now—talk about
1: a warlike
2: people, a warlike country!
1: My gosh, it's—and every Jew, beca- and
2: every Jew became proud of being a Jew after the nineteen sixty-seven successful war. Right. That's right. when all Jews came out of the closet and said, "Oh boy, nobody pushes us around anymore." Because prior to that, the Jewish mythology was if you spit in a jew's face what does he do he says oh it must be raining outside we were victims and we played the role of victims because we had no choice who the hell were we going to fight we had no guns we had no army and we were victimized it's just to move the conversation over for a second but we've
1: been talking about the war in afghanistan all the wars we're still fighting we're still fighting in the middle east now yeah but Recently, economist Richard Wolf said that the U.S. spent $8 trillion, that's trillion with a T, mm-hmm. in, the, in the last 20 years on wars, we didn't win. That's that, right. And this includes the cost of VA treatments of wounded and psychologically yes. damaged Americans. So when Butler said war is a racket, mm. he was saying, oh, that he and, and the military people that report to him we're fighting for the profits of the mm-hmm. profiteers yeah well we're talking about 8 trillion dollars and right now yeah. the country is in this big debate over spending 150 mil- billion dollars a year for 10 years so they go oh it's 1.5 trillion right. but it's but it's it's 1.5 trillion over 10 years We mm-hmm. spent 8 trillion Yeah. In these wars. And what did we get out of that? Could you comment
2: on that a little bit? What is all this money about? Well, the racket started in 1812. We wanted access to Canada. The racket started in 1845. Mexico was freeing the slaves and we wanted a new slave state. All of our wars were fought in the interest of capitalism or imperialism or for profit all of them. The Civil War, the North really wasn't opposed to slavery because they were benefiting from it. All of the cotton industry, all of the shipping, all of the mercantile, all wars, English and every war, were a racket in which we were fighting, poor people were fighting for the wealthy uh, class to remain wealthy. Now, the military is an industry. Dwight Eisenhower said it: a military-industrial complex, but we have an unbelievable amount of generals. They all live well. They need a war. They need something. So, you know, they, they keep it up. And they, they are cheerfully subordinate to the industrial elite, to the corporations.
0: Eisenhower famously, as he was yeah. leaving office, he had already seen the threat right. that this posed. And he, he basically said right to the American people on television, uh, you guys need to watch out for this because this is a big problem.
2: Yep. And he said the military industrial complex will become a monster that will devour you. But that's, yeah.
0: that's a very
1: scary and cynical concept that we would actually fight a war, kill hundreds of thousands of people so that Boeing could make me um, to single out Boeing. Right? Yeah. But Boeing, Bechtel, Lockheed, all these defense contractors could make their money, taxpayer
2: money. I don't think it's cynical. And by the way, the American military industrial complex is so sophisticated that they put plants in all 48 states. So every state has a vested interest in maintaining the, industrial, the military complex.
1: Oh, Connecticut, certainly. Connecticut's yeah. economy is very oh. dependent. Oh on electric boat and Sikorsky helicopter. I mean, these are major defense contractors.
2: Now, a lot of them are located in the South, but they're located all over the country. And it's integral to our culture and our society. I want to go back to Israel for a minute. They, as you now know, have mandatory military service for two years, including women. And Israel has one of the better covert operations. You know, their special forces are considered to be even better than ours. Now just recently Israel said it's going to mobilize the Hasidim and the Ultra Orthodox because they were exempt for religious reasons. And boy are those two up in arms, but Israel said, hey, we're tired of fighting for you. You're going to have to join the army. Now America never had a draft. We we always had a peacetime army. The only time we drafted was in World War, in the Civil War. And if you remember, once the draft came about, the Irish in New York City literally waged a rebellion and an insurrection. They killed every black they could get their hands on because they were willing to fight for the Union. They were not willing to free the slaves. And in World War I, we had a conscription. And again, this government sent Eugene Debs and everybody it could to jail. And for the foreign ones, the communists like Emma Goldman and I forget who else, who were basically Russian and Jewish, they deported them immediately. So, again, people don't know it. And it, by the way, if you told them, they would approve of it. So I see us as losing every war. But somehow or other capitalism survives and it goes on and it will continue to go on. So in that
1: regard, it doesn't really matter if we win the war on the battlefield or whatever the intent of the war is like the war on terrorism. I don't have no idea what we're supposed to win there, like defeat terrorism, which is insane, but it doesn't seem to matter if we win as long as the defense contractors get their trillions and the workers get their job. So just keep the war going, just drag it out another five, 10 years, just keep dragging it out because there's more money to be made.
2: Yes, and when that war does end, you'll find another war. My attitude is not cynical. My attitude is realistic.
0: Jack, this relates back to Ernest Becker and our ideas about psychology, that we're all inherently lonely and to some extent scared about how things are going to come out. And as a result of that, we like to feel like we're part of something bigger than ourselves. And that takes many forms. And we're wondering, want to ask... If war provides an opportunity for people to feel part of something bigger than ourselves.
2: Oh, absolutely. Anytime a war starts, we're all for it. All people. And Hmm. you have all of the parades, and then you have the post-history analysis, which focuses on the heroism of the soldiers, you know, that kind of thing. Yes, war is very definitely uh, one of them. But, you know, I, I have problems with everything. And as much as I like Becker's denial of death, I also think we are born with a death wish. And some strange ways work accomplishes both. And it's only when we suffer, particularly the wounded that come back more than the dead. But I think it's it's something bigger. People go out on strike who are not radical, who are certainly not left wing, but involved in that strike and that unity I have a lot of friends who are in social work, and I always tell them, because social work is all about self-help, you know, I tell all of my social work friends, psychologists who help people with all this wonderful advice, you want to help them, tell them to join a revolutionary movement. They will lose themselves in the movement, and they will be fine until the movement gets crushed or until the movement leaders turn out not to be leaders. So yeah war is a very powerful instinct and even in even in pacifistic countries but I just want to make a point we lost 500,000 troops in the war Russia lost 27 million people she had 3 million prisoners of war who died in german camps she lost maybe 5 million soldiers but if you listen to America we won world war 2 You know, it was the Russians who won World War II at a tremendous cost. And we delayed going into uh, opening up a second front as long as we could, because Churchill wanted to bleed Russia so that they wouldn't come out of this powerful. But that was a long way of saying, I agree with you. (laughs) Human beings, in my mind, are one of nature's mistakes. Now, that doesn't mean that monkeys and and whales and anything else isn't a mistake, but we are one of nature's mistakes. We are not what we think we are. The fact that we are capable of loneliness and all of these things tells you that. Now, my problem is I think we are born with a dual brain. We needed to cooperate to survive, and I'm writing about this. In those eons, when we develop hominids, people who cooperated survived better than people who didn't at the same time people who were aggressive survived better than those who didn't so both groups survived is my attitude and i think we have people who are born with a predisposition to be cooperative open friendly whatever and we have people who are born with a predisposition to be fearful and whatever we are a very complex animal
1: We've been talking with author Jack Moscow on war and related subjects, and subjects that are distantly related, I guess. We're going to take a short break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. We're having a conversation about war with Jack Moscow, author of Why Not
0: Utopia? Jack, Hollywood has a love-hate relationship with war. From Audie Murphy heroism to full metal jacket, what is the role that war movies play in our society?
2: If you haven't already learned, asking me a question is almost an oxymoron because I'm going to answer going back to when Adam came out of the jungle. (laughs) Let me say this. Hollywood has a love-hate relationship with making money. Two, Hollywood was founded primarily by European Jews, and they very much wanted to become American, Americanized. And 99% of their movies, in one way or another, were to ingratiate themselves into the American culture. So whether they were doing Gone with the Wind or Birth of a Nation, whatever they were doing... They wanted to go along with the ruling power elites. And when the ruling power elites wanted to get rid of communist uh, script writers and actors, Hollywood fired all of them. So they made all kinds of movies. I have a subscription to Amazon and Walmart or whatever. And those podcasts and those movies that they play are very often radical. Some of them are very pro-war Well, that's what I was going to say. Not some of them. If you look at the preponderance, they are pro-war. Right. They are pro-our culture, is what I'm saying. So Hollywood does that. It does it very well. And by the way, Hollywood has probably been the most successful importer of American cultural values that all of our wars put together. I mean, you know, France, England, uh, Afghanistan, everywhere. They love American movies.
1: Sure. Hollywood has also made anti war movies.
2: Oh, absolutely.
1: And was that just because they were pandering to the anti Vietnam War sentiment at that time? Or is there really this love hate relationship where the American people can't make up their minds? And so Hollywood can't make up their minds if war is a good
2: thing or a bad thing? Let me go back to the 1930s. We sat out the Spanish Civil War. Sitting out the Spanish Civil War was, by definition, helping Franco and Hitler and Mussolini, because given enough arms and ammunition, the Spanish government would have been able to put down Franco's insurrection. There was tremendous American support to stay out of the war, from Lindbergh and America First and Father Coughlin and the whole pre- right wing that we have today. They were very powerful then. And uh, Franco was fighting to preserve Western civilization and Christianity from the godless communists because the Spanish government uh, took away all of the religious preferences and they were anti-clerical. Now in the midst of all of this, there was an anti-Franco film, I can't remember the name of it, starring Henry Fonda. It was written by a Hollywood writer who was a communist. Powerful movie. You've probably seen by 10,000 people, you know, that kind of thing. There's a powerful movie called The Salt of the Earth, written again by blacklisted communists, about a mining strike in New Mexico. And it was one of these things where they were the first to use real people. And uh, in that mining strike was the women who were the backbone of the strike. The men were going to cave in. Hollywood produced it. And I can think of any number of movies. Casablanca was an anti-fascist movie written by Howard Koch, who was a a communist and blacklisted. And by the way, Casablanca, all of those actors were uh, Europeans, uh, came over Hmm. and uh, had a hard time uh, making a a living in American films. But again, Billy Wilder, you name them. Peter Lorre. uh, I'm trying to think now of of the uh, directors. Virtually... 50% of the Hollywood directors in the 1940s were German exiles. Some non-Jewish, but mostly Jewish. So Hollywood, they didn't pass on a lot of them, but they let some slip slip through for whatever reason. Basically, what you got in Hollywood is always upholding the status quo. You know, all, all of the movies were like, America is great, that kind of thing. Even a movie like, What was the one uh, that featured the guy who had lost his hands?
0: The Best Years of Our Lives. Oh, man.
2: Even a movie which showed the horrors of war, in a way, glamorized it. Because it it showed how you succeeded.
0: So uh, stepping slightly away from Hollywood and getting into a more general area, we want to ask Jack, what is a just war?
2: I doubt if there is any such thing. But hypothetically, I can say in effect, Finland was no threat to the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union imagined it was a threat because uh, there were a lot of pro-Nazi elements. But that was a just war. The Soviets just poured over the world. Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. These were countries that had a long history and Russia decided with with Hitler that those countries were a threat to them. When Hitler invaded Poland, Russia joined in and carved out a large chunk of Poland as a buffer zone, and that included Lithuania, Estonia, and Latvia, and you could argue that those countries were fighting for their independence. On the other hand, you could argue, yeah, but they were sympathetic to the Nazis, and they might have let themselves be used as a launching pad. So I can't really think of a just war per se. But
1: everyone says that World War II was the good war, that we had to fight World War II. Well, not everybody. You know, Pat Buchanan wrote a book about right. you know, uh, it not being a, uh, a necessary war. But for the most part, every American will say, yeah, what about Hitler? We had to stop Hitler. Yeah, what about World War II? That's a
2: just war. Well, two points. We never went into World War II until the Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbor. Forget that after that, Hitler thought the Japanese were going to win, so he declared war on us. Hmm. And at, up at that time, the America Firsts' were a vast majority. They did not want to go to war, and if they wanted to go to war. They wanted to go to war against the Soviet Union, not against uh, Germany. We were fighting the wrong war. Hmm. Now
1: that's Buchanan's point. Buchanan, yeah. yeah. And, yep. and when you look at the Soviet Union's record, I mean, someone said recently they killed a hundred million people in the the history of that regime. World War Two, oh, absolutely most violent. But there are quite a few people looking back say, well. We fought the wrong war, but most people will say World War II was just, we had to fight it. I don't necessarily agree with that, but this is what... We, we,
2: it, this is what is known as an after-the-fact rationalization along the lines of confirmation bias. But it's
1: also the propaganda that
2: that's that permeated our society. Okay, let, let me ask you a question. Assuming after World War One, when we had the uh, Versailles Treaty. Right. By the way, Ho Chi Minh went to that treaty and he appeared as a Vietnamese nationalist and asked them to let Vietnam become independent of the French. And Woodrow Wilson, who pioneered the independence movement for all countries, turned them down. Right. So where do you go back to when you say it's just four? Versailles imposed upon the Germans an unbelievable reparations which Wilson opposed. And those reparations led to the Weimar Republic, the overthrow of it, and Hitler. We didn't recognize the Soviet Union until 1933. And during that period, every European country and America had troops in Russia fighting the Bolsheviks up until about 1923 or 24. So when you say a just war, it could have been avoided if right. we had. Now, same thing in Cuba. We're waging war against Cuba. An embargo is considered an act of war. Sure. Now, the CIA has launched any number of covert operations. Castro has survived. Now, did Castro set out to kill, as he has, and marginalize the counter-revolutionaries? Or if we had embraced Cuba, and by the way, in 1898, The Spanish-American War, we took Puerto Rico, Cuba. Cuba was independent. We went in and we established our government there. If we had embraced the Cuban Revolution, it would have turned out entirely differently. Because he wanted to be an American democracy. So did Ho Chi Minh, modeled Indochina on American independence. They wanted to be us, but with a socialist framework. And I'm saying that we forced them into the posture they eventually took. So I don't think there is such a thing as a just war. However, once the war occurred, uh, it becomes a different story. It takes on a life of its own. The Ukrainians welcomed the German army. They literally, the Ukrainians welcomed the Germans as liberators because they hated the Russians. They were part of the right Russian counter-revolution during that whole Bolshevik period. And it wasn't until Hitler was so, the Germans were so outrageous If they captured three million soldiers right away, they surrendered. The whole Ukrainian section of the army, they just surrendered. Boom. But then it became clear that the Germans didn't know what to do with them, and they put them in camps, and they were starving them to death and maltreating them. And they came into the Ukraine, and they killed every commissar, who was mostly Jewish. And the Ukrainians were fine. In fact, the Ukrainians actually helped the Germans find and kill Jews. And it wasn't until the Germans ran out of Jews that they decided they needed to kill Ukrainians, that the Ukrainians finally became part of the war effort. So I don't see any just war. I just see human beings constantly blundering into. And then after the fact saying, in effect, oh, God, look at the Holocaust. Well, if you think about the Holocaust, Roosevelt and Churchill were asked to bomb the camps and they didn't do it because they didn't want the Germans to know that they had stolen their uh, radar secrets. And again, if you look at the Holocaust, the Russian Gulag was probably twice as bad, if not more. Yeah. We've had
1: several in these wars, these recent wars. Mm-hmm. I know you like to talk about history, but I'd like to talk about the last few years. And, mm-hmm. and Chelsea Manning and Julian Assange have suffered yep. incredibly for what they did in the Iraq war. Yep. In your mind, are they heroes?
2: Uh, the answer is yes, but I want to qualify it in the following way. The first responders who went into the World Trade Center towers, particularly the firemen and the policemen, clearly were heroes. But I want to make a point. They didn't go in with the expectation they would die. Mm-hmm. They went in with the expectation that they would be able to rescue people. Their death was heroic, not their intent. And Bill Mark got fired for saying this. The hijackers were heroic. They went into those buildings knowing they would die. They didn't expect to come out of it alive. That's heroism. Now, it was for a terrible cause. Now, again, going back to this, the Communist Party and communists in general and neo-communists and some people who were merely liberals suffered tremendously during the McCarthy period. But I didn't become a communist thinking I would get fired from my job and harassed by the FBI. That happened as an after effect. Larry Parks didn't become a communist thinking he would lose his job because he was an actor.
1: Yeah, but I think Chelsea Manning.
2: No, that's what I'm saying. I want to make yeah. the point. Okay. They may have because they have the benefit of hindsight.
1: No, no, I think. So that... they may have. No, they
2: may have known that they were going to be punished this way. Okay. If they went in knowing it, they are definitely heroic. If they went in step by step and gradually. They became heroes, but they didn't start out that way. But I don't want to quibble. I just want to say human language is so goddamn imperfect. We could be saying the same thing and not saying the same thing. They are okay. definitely heroes, however okay. you want to define it.
1: But now contrast them, Manning and Assange, if you will, yeah. with the late Colin Powell. And everyone's been singing his praises. And I and I don't want to speak ill of the dead, but and His involvement in the invasion of Panama and the run-up to the Iraq war, could you comment on Colin Powell as this American hero as he's being portrayed?
2: Smedley Butler already characterized him. He is a racketeer for capitalism. Wow. Period. Now, I want want to make a point here. He's an honorable man, as we define honorable. Erwin Rommel, the general was an honorable man. He despised Hitler, but he was loyal to the German army and he actually wound up committing suicide because the Germans gave him a choice. If you commit suicide, we'll bury you with honors and we'll let your family live. He was an honorable man, but if you fought in the Nazi army, you were not honorable. You were a war criminal. Any number of the German general staff were opposed to the SS and what Hitler was doing. Some of them actually barred the SS from uh, their theater of operations. And more than a few of them actually joined in the plot to kill Hitler. Although many of them who joined in the plot to kill Hitler did it not for moral reasons, but they knew the war was lost and they wanted to get out with the least possible damage. But my point is everybody who served in the German general staff, these were not honorable people they were racketeers for their country and colin powell absolutely now we call him an american success story came over from jamaica settled in a jewish neighborhood got hired by a jewish grocery store wound up speaking yiddish went into the rotc to get an education moved up through the ranks but what was he doing He was working as a racketeer for a country that is, at heart, a vicious country. We are vicious to poor people. We are vicious to minorities. We are vicious to women. Now, we cover it with all kinds of words. But at the bottom, it is a vicious system, and he was happy to support it. Now, in terms of military who go into the army because they need to make a living, because they mistakenly think they're involved in something good, they're different. They're not at the same level of culpability. So no, I have no use for Powell or any of those people. And I can't think of one that I would excuse. And the same thing is true on the left. A lot of these people are opportunists. My laughing comment is revolutionaries run on a platform of of free love. And the first thing they do when they get in power is they outlaw sex because sex is subversive to their system. That's true. So I have no use for power. By the way, you'll never shut me up. Uh, You'll have to turn off the computer. Heinrich Himmler, who was the guy (laughs) who masterminded the whole extermination camps,
1: Hmm.
2: wrote a book called We Are Decent People. He told his staff who were doing these killings He said, we are decent people. We are simply tasked with a very difficult job to rid the world of unworthy people. I understand what you're saying.
1: And you can say, okay, Powell as a general and a military person was complicit in this broad general Mm -hmm. uh, indictment of war makers. But I'm thinking specifically About, I can't get it out of my head that Chelsea Manning sitting there watching civilians murdered by U.S. troops blows the whistle.
2: Okay, I see where you're coming from. I agree.
1: Right. And then, but Powell, on the other hand, knowing full well that this is bogus, there were no weapons of mass destruction. Mm -hmm. There was no evidence of that knowing full well that the, the whole thing was concocted, took us into that war, Yeah, which then led to yeah. the, the abuses that Chelsea Manning was was reporting and that Julian Assange reported. And poor Assange, I don't know, I say poor Assange, I don't know the guy, who knows. But, but the fact is, he's been in prison for years for blowing the whistle on this, this war yeah. in Iraq. And I'm I'm looking at Powell and saying, how in the world are we lionizing this this well,
2: liar? His overwhelming project in life was America is a democracy. We are the greatest country in the world, and I'm going along with it, even with reservations. And internally, he argued against it. And people do these things, but our because- society seems to need these. Well, we need to rationalize Wars. our behavior. And so we rationalize, plans. Yeah. But uh, you talked earlier about the drones. Yeah. I mean, every time we allegedly kill a leader, we wind up killing a wedding party. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, it's, it's scary. And there are guys, they're in a silo. They're watching the screen. And they press a button. And the button releases a drone that is targeted on three al-Qaeda leaders are right here. Later on, they find out there were no al-Qaeda leaders, but there was a wedding party. There was whatever. And and we we ignore it. I will digress to um, Hannah Arendt, the banality of evil. Very few people killed the Jews in the concentration camp. Some people rounded them up. Some people put them on a train. Some people took them off the train. Some people marched them to the gas chamber. And some people pulled the plug. So all along the way, there were people who didn't really kill Jews. You know, they only did a part of it. And by the way, there were Jews, as you know, at the gas chambers. They were in the orchestra playing. That was to calm the people down. And one of the survivors, after they played, they themselves was gas. But one of the survivors played in the orchestra and saw his wife and children being marched to the gas chamber and said, how could I not step down and join them? But he didn't. He didn't. Uh, let me just ask this question. Are you are the three of us complicit in America's war crimes because we are not Chelsea Manning? We are not Julian Assange. We are not the people who went to jail for one reason or another. Are we complicit? Yeah, I
1: think we are. Speaking for myself, yes, I think we are. I think that the moral thing to do would be to say, I'm not paying any taxes that go to yeah. war. Yeah, I think we are complicit, but I think the wars have defined us. And when you look at America, post-World War II America, the victory culture that we maintained for several decades, that's just now falling apart, it united the country. Yes. Now, say for good or, or ill, I, I mean, it's debatable. But we certainly weren't as totally divided as we are today, totally distrustful and, and cynical and skeptical of everything the government does, everything that science and medicine and media, the post-World War II victory culture respected all of those institutions. And I'm not saying it's good or bad, but I'm saying that, that we all were complicit because we all were part of America. It was part of our identities. It's who we are.
2: Again, obviously, there are degrees of complicity. Powell was in a position to be more complicit, you and I are not. True. Now, am I less complicit than you? Because in 1940. I don't know, at 47 or 48, at the age of 18, I joined the Communist Party to protest imperialism. You know, and I I, I quote unquote suffered. You know, I lost my job and I, I had to scramble for a few years. But other people like Assange and many more lost more than their jobs. They were exiled, they were deported, they were put in prison for years. Again, are the strikers in Harlan County who were killed uh, less complicit than the scabs who went to work. Hmm. Th- th- these are tough. Now, I, I just want to again, challenge your point in this way. In the Revolutionary War, apparently only one-third of the colonists supported the revolution. And in fact, more Americans went to Canada than Cubans left Havana to come here. In the Civil War, I mean, talk about division. I mean, that was the bloodiest war in in history up to that point. Talk about a labor strife. Now, right now, our country is totally divided because we had as a country, despite all of what I said, bought the myth that we were a peaceful and prosperous country. We no longer buy that myth. What I will predict, I love predictions because they're in the future. So I can always be right sometime in the future, even if I'm wrong now. Our present division is irreversible, absolutely irreversible. We will be involved in a civil war. I love that word, how how war can be civil is beyond me, for the foreseeable future. Now, that war will take several forms, one of which is I suspect there will be more actual insurrections. Our insurrections actually started with the Oklahoma City bombing, but nobody called it an insurrection. That was the militia from Michigan. We're going to have more insurrections. These people aren't going away. Trump isn't going away. The group behind him isn't going away. It is, to me, crystal clear. According
1: to psychologist Steven Pinker and historian Yuval Noah Harari, yeah. the number and severity of wars has declined. In the last 50 years, there are not many all out wars, merely small contained wars. Harari said, War is obsolete. You're more likely to commit suicide than be killed in conflict. He's talking statistics, talking about 50 years, the broad statistical analysis that Pinker likes to engage in. So the question then is, is this alleged reduction real, or is it the lull before the pent-up aggression explodes? I'm
2: going to argue it's the lull before the pent-up aggression. And if a historian is looking back at us at this time, he will reduce the period from World War II to whenever the eruption occurs in one sentence. History will say, in effect, there was no real major wars for a period of 100 years, and then go on to something else. The question is comparative. What I object to is not their concept that there haven't been any wars like World War II or World War I. But what the hell do you call a war in Somalia? What do you call a war in Honduras? By the way, I go so far as to argue that gang wars. Are wars, but we have to use that word. Mm. When I say we're a warlike people, we're shooting 20,000 of our own people ourselves. Isn't that a war? So they're, they're right. There are no major wars, but I would venture to guess that just as World War One successfully barred germ warfare, mm. although Hussein, whom we supported in this war against Iraq, used it, I would argue that the next war will make uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki look like Charles Play because it won't be two atom bombs. It'll be 20 hydrogen bombs. And wow. but, but it's a safe prediction because you can't prove it because we haven't lived long enough.
0: This may seem like a question uh, strangely at odds with your last statement, but I have to ask, Jack, because we're coming to the end of our time. Are you hopeful
2: about the future? No. No, I always why because I think we are a flawed species, and I think that the destructive species will win out over the cooperative species, so I'm not hopeful. Now, I could conceive of a situation where a hydrogen holocaust will wipe out 90% of the uh, human population, and the 10% that will emerge will have a new basic genetic makeup that's cooperative, but i, I don't see any hope uh, my, my attitude is you you're you are what your record says you are. what do you see in our record? certainly since we have a language written language, you know we can speculate about the eons when we were emerging as a species, but you name a species. A predator species that doesn't remain a predator species. But we have mad
1: the uh, mutually assured mutually destruction. destruction. Thank you. Well, well we, we have we,
2: we have something no other animal has. We have cultural liftoff, and the argument is that cultural liftoff will let us transcend ourselves. I object to the word transcend. I don't think we can transcend our biology. I think what cultural liftoff can do is cope with our capacity for violence. You know, it's like if you wake up and you say, oh, I'm going to have a bad day today, I'm in a bad mood. Knowing that you can consciously make a decision not to have a bad day. But I don't think we transcend our biology. I think the instinctive reaction to everything from from the other to any affront to us will be that of a predator animal.
1: We restrained ourselves yeah. from attacking Russia directly, and instead we engaged in these proxy wars. Right, but it was the threat of nuclear holocaust yes. that that kept us at bay and continues yes. to keep us all at bay. It's the threat of nuclear holocaust that keeps us from invading North Korea, and that's and it. the North Koreans know it, and that's why they keep. Putting it out there, hey, we've got nukes and now we've got missiles to keep us at bay
2: and the whole world. And Um, and that will continue to work until it doesn't work. At some point, it doesn't work. And it it, it lasted an awful long time. And America was really one of the pioneers of what I call capitalism bends, but it doesn't break. Let's just say it this way I'm pessimistic. I have no problem with people who are optimistic. And I, I use your earlier podcasts as reference with uh, your what's your one guy Greenberg. Mm,
1: well, he's never been a, he's never been a guest on the podcast, but yes, yeah. we've, we've interviewed him in the past. Sure,
2: and uh, he's a uh, very pessimistic, and so am I. Now, people ask me, well, if you're pessimistic, why do you work for a better world? Well, why not? I mean, does it tell... There- Working for a better world, that doesn't make me less pessimistic. It just makes it easier for me to try to cope with and understand my situation.
1: As one of my favorite writers said, why not utopia? Yeah. Ah, there that, you go.
2: <laughs> that, that's what I said. <laughs> there you go.
1: <laughs> As you said. Well, but, then I,
2: but then I answer the question in the blogs I'm writing now. <laughs> because it's antithetical to our human nature. Oh, I'm, I'm writing some very interesting stuff that you'll, I'll be sharing with you. Good, but I'm very careful in the in the beginning to say, um, even on Planet Utopia, the way we evolved, just the way you did, we can't reach utopia. <clears throat> we're still jealous. We're still angry. We still get upset. We still hurt people. But we know we shouldn't do it, and we create all these situations that, you know, lessen the amount of times we do it, and how we cope with it.
1: Folks, we've been talking with Jack Moscow about war and i don't know what all all what else and jack thank you for another terrific conversation it's been a blast
2: thank you for inviting me i I really think that your podcast is important thank you
1: thank you jack so anyhow thank you you for inviting
2: me and i'll look forward to uh, making sense of all of the things i said so that what the listener hears is something coherent and on point.
0: (laughs) Thanks, Jack. We hope you'll be our guest again. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Always Uh, a pleasure. Thanks, man. All right. Take care. Bye.
1: You've been listening to our interview with author Jack Moscow on war and related topics. Ken, what's your
0: takeaway? Well, to start, Steve, Jack is our resident pessimist. Oh, we have others. (laughs) Yes, we do. But predicting a nuclear holocaust is one of the most extreme examples I could come up with. He says, the next war will make Hiroshima and Nagasaki look like child's play, because it won't be two atom bombs, it'll be 20 hydrogen bombs.
1: Okay, that's that's pretty bleak. <laughs> you think? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I can't argue with a prediction. Who knows what will happen? The thing is, try as I may, I can't refute jack's basic
0: position i know
1: yeah it's based on a view of humanity that i find to be essentially true
0: yeah i'd like to think otherwise and a couple of days a month i almost succeed but i really can't either you know he's (laughs) kind of calling it calling it like he sees it
1: and you know we're all about hope but you know sometimes hope is hard to come by
0: yeah we didn't find much here
1: yeah but let's break it down Okay. Jack says human beings in my mind are one of nature's mistakes. We are not what we think we are. Now, who does that sound like?
0: Well, that's that's textbook Ernest Becker, yeah, from uh Escape from Evil. He says humanity uh, may not turn out to be a viable species. Right. And
1: also in Escape from Evil, Becker said he is pessimistic but not cynical. And Jack says, my attitude is not cynical. My attitude is realistic. Uh, Again, you know, pretty close. He says, we are a very complex animal. My problem is, I think we are born with a dual brain, he said. We needed to cooperate to survive in those eons when we developed from hominids. People who cooperated survived better than people who didn't. At the same time, people who were aggressive survived better than those who didn't, so both groups survived. We have people today who are born with a predisposition to be cooperative, open, friendly, whatever. And we have people who are born with a predisposition to be fearful. I would add that fear leads to aggression. Yep. Jack says, We are a flawed species. He thinks that the destructive group will win out over the cooperative group. He says, you are what your record says you are. I don't think we could transcend our biology. The instinctive reaction to everything from the other to any threat or affront to us will be that of a predator animal.
0: Yeah. It's a dark but plausible view of humanity. In terms of 21st century America, Jack says that most Americans don't even know the country's history of war. Yeah. He says Americans have a Teutonic, militaristic attitude. Every time there was a war in England, in Germany, in the United States, the bands played and everybody cheerfully went to war. We're always so certain that we're Right.
1: I love that, a Teutonic militaristic attitude. He lumps us in with the English and Germans, (laughs) calling us a warlike people. He says probably accurately that American history is basically unknown, or at least the counter-history is unknown, to 99% of Americans. He says oppressed people can't let go of their oppression. The oppressor can't remember it. That's why they don't want to hear critical race theory, for example. Yeah. All of our wars were fought in the interests of capitalism or imperialism or for profit. The military is an industry, according to Jack.
0: Yeah. He says, We are at heart a vicious country. We're vicious to poor people. We're vicious to minorities. We're vicious to women now. And he adds... We need to rationalize our behavior. Jack expands his notion
1: of war to include large-scale violence like the labor strikes in the 1910 to 20 period, steel, Mm -hmm. auto, coal, all those labor strikes that the government's response was to call out the military.
0: Yeah, that was interesting. That's an interesting observation to make. He's not very optimistic about the domestic future of the country. He says, our present division is irreversible, absolutely irreversible. We'll be involved in a civil war. Our insurrections actually started with the Oklahoma City bombing, but nobody called that an insurrection. We're going to have more insurrections.
1: And Jack said, people ask me, well, if you're pessimistic, why do you work for a better world? And he says, well, why not? working for a better world that doesn't make me less pessimistic it just makes it easier for me to cope with and understand my situation
0: yeah that was william james's response to someone saying why do you help the other guy out when you don't there's nothing in it for you and james's answer was well why not it's not a bad thing to do pragmatism yeah jack says he's realistic that's
1: pragmatic is another way to say it
0: yeah and as someone i know said I can't think of anything else to do. Uh, that would be me. That would, (laughs) yeah, that would, that would, that yes, that would. Important (laughs) ideas, Steve. Uh, Important ideas,
1: and thank you, Jack. Folks, join us next time. Like us on Facebook. Please recommend us to your friends. You can find us at
0: www.thehubforimportantideas.com. Support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com front slash The Hub Important Ideas. We are 100% listener supported.
1: And please check out our documentary video series, Conversations with Solomon, Exploring Human Motivation, now on YouTube. Thank you for listening to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. Stay safe, everybody. Stay well. This has been a Contemporary Heroism Initiative production.